The Bob Murphy Show, episode 79. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Oh, this is a good one. I had back on episode 39, so that's bobmurphyshow.com slash 39, I had Stefan Kinsella on, and we talked about law in a stateless society, and because he has a lot of good knowledge about legal history and theory, and then we focused on what his Stefan's primary contribution to libertarian theory, namely his critique of intellectual property, or IP. And we made some passing remarks about the fact that he and I had a big disagreement in print over Hans Hoppe's argumentation ethics. And we didn't get into it. We, we had planned on doing it, and we just we ran out of time. We were going too long on the other stuff. And then I mentioned in the supporting listeners group, hey, you guys, do you want me to have Stefan on sometime again, and we'll talk about Hoppe's argumentation? And people were foaming at the mouth, champing at the bit. Not chomping at the bit, but champing at the bit, mind you. So I brought him back on just because I'm a man of the people. And uh, I, I was very, very pleasantly surprised. What ends up happening in this discussion is uh, I certainly got a much better appreciation of where Stefan's been coming from all these years. And I think he also, something clicked and he realized, oh, that's what your point has been all along, Bob. I see. So anyway, I think it's a really good discussion. We'll start out and you will explain what Hoppe's argument is. And we spend a lot of time just clarifying that, nailing it down. And then we proceed from there, and uh, it's uh, it's good stuff. So even if you think you already know what Hoppe's argument is and you've read the critiques from people like me and Gene Callahan and then read Stefan's response, I still think you're going to gain something from this discussion because I did, even though I had been familiar with my own work on the topic and what Stefan had said in response. Uh, as far as Stefan's formal bio, just in case you didn't hear the previous episode, He's an attorney and libertarian writer in Houston, founder and executive director of Libertarian Papers. He's founder and director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, a member of the editorial board of Reason Papers, and several other things. And uh, again, he's, he's primarily known for his contributions on the theory of intellectual property or IP and why actually it's not a valid form of property under standard libertarian law. But the topic for today is Hans Hoppe's argumentation ethics. Without further ado, here is my interview with Stefan. Stefan, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you. So uh, by popular demand, because I floated this idea by the, uh, the people in the supporters group, and they were all very enthusiastic. They said, yeah, they wanted us to hash out our difference of opinion on uh, Hoppe's argumentation ethics. So that's what we're doing here. So I think... The best way to proceed is I'll keep time just on this opening segment here. And why don't you take 10 minutes, Stefan, and, and, you know, I'll flash signs. You can see how, how what your time's like. 
just take 10 minutes to just lay out the argument from scratch, as it were, for people who haven't heard it yet. And then I think we'll just go back and forth and it'll, it'll be fun. I thought we were going to do like uh, wearing our team shirts here. I mean, I have LSU on because they're powerful in the SEC right now. That's my good luck totem. Oh, so you wanted me to have a Texas Tech shirt on? Yeah, maybe that or maybe Columbia or no, NYU. I mean, uh, something. Yeah. You know, well, my Texas Tech shirt is, you... is dirty. So that's one reason. Ah, uh, well. LSU plays dirty, so <laughs> there um, you go. All right, so I'm going to so start. Basically, with, yeah, so it's not not an official yeah. thing. I won't, you know, I'll just flag you, but yeah, let's just keep it somewhat manageable. So go ahead. Well, I think so. You're trying to persuade me to be a nihilist and a bad libertarian or a socialist, and I'm trying to persuade you to be a better Christian and libertarian. So whoever wins is totally arbitrary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> what, Nothing's what at go stake, better. right? Yeah. Yeah, I want to bring out your your better libertarian self. Um. Well, what's interesting is you and I have been friends for quite a while, and we've had lunches when you used to live in Houston on occasion. And we've actually never talked about much, I think, in person about the 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 uh, the dispute or debate we had in, I think it was two thousand two, mm-hmm. like seventeen years ago now. I can't believe it. So we didn't you, want to end the friendship. Written, so what's that? I said we didn't want to end the friendship. That's probably why. I, well, probably because Rob Bradley was there. Rob rolls his eyes when we talk about anything, you know, that's not empirical. I mean, that's just how Rob is. Um, I think you, you and Gene Callahan had written a critique of Hoppe's argumentation ethics in probably 2002 in antistate.com, right? And I wrote a, a reply of sorts to you guys, and I think that's the last time we've really talked about it. Although you and Gene basically republished a slightly tweaked version of that in the in the JLS when Roderick Long was helming it a few years later, so that's kind of the status of our uh, disputes on this. Um, so I have been a libertarian since like late high school. I was into the Ayn Rand view, the natural rights or natural law view for quite a while, uh, a minarchist, and then got more radical with Rothbard. And when I came across Hoppe's argumentation ethics in the mid-80s, which is when he started coming out with this in a few uh, publications like the Austrian Economics Newsletter and then in Liberty Magazine in 1988, um, and I was in law school at the time, I was fascinated by it, and I I remain fascinated by it. And I thought it was just a a brilliant argument, which fascinates me to this day. And it's Hoppe's take on justifying the core – libertarian principles that you and I presumably both agree in, which is you could summarize by saying the non-aggression principle or the Lockean property rights view, the idea that you know what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. We own our bodies. We own things we, we appropriate in the world or, or, or that we get by contract from people. And other than that, property rights are inviolate, and everything else is just working out the details. So his argument was a different argument than I'd say conventional arguments. So I would say conventional arguments that libertarians give for why they believe in the basic libertarian idea, right? Pro- the property rights, individual rights, uh, non-aggression principle idea. The primary arguments people would give would be, well, they're consequentialist, which means they they want certain results or consequences like people living together and, and, and prosperity and harmony and cooperation with each other. And because they know a little bit about economics and human nature, they're therefore in favor of, say, a free market or a property rights system 
as the means to achieve this end. So there's a consequentialist aspect to the typical arguments for liberty. There's also a more natural rights argument, which is that given human nature, given what it is, there's a certain way that we should behave in the world. There's certain things we should do and should not do. And one subset of that is how we should re- uh, treat each other with respect to force, and that's the libertarian thing. So that's like a, a natural law uh, argument. Ayn Rand, in a way, has a version of that, right? Um, so you have different arguments for liberty. Some, some people are just intuitionists. They just they have an intuition that liberty is good, or they just want freedom. So all these different impulses or arguments dovetail into this kind of diverse movement that we have. And Hoppe came came along and he said, listen. And Rothbard, by the way, so Rothbard was Hoppe's teacher and mentor, and Rothbard was a, a like an anarchist version of Ayn Rand in a way, like an Aristotelian natural rights, natural law type. But what Hoppe, Hoppe is more influenced by Kant and that tradition and that terminology and that conceptual framework and nomenclature. And Hoppe argued probably the first time he came to widespread attention was this 1988 Liberty Symposium where he argued – um, I, I have come up with the ultimate argument for libertarian rights, and it is rooted in sort of a combination of, of Mises' praxeology, which was in a way influenced by Kant's terminology, uh, Kant's sort of framework, and also the, the thing called discourse ethics or argumentation ethics of his PhD advisor, Jürgen Habermas, who is a well-known – he's still alive. He's older now, but he's a well-known European um, – sort of democratic socialist but brilliant philosopher, and his colleague Carl Otto Appel. So Appel and Habermas had developed this thing called discourse ethics, and their argument was a complicated one basically to justify the democratic socialist welfare state. So they argued that people that are parts of communities in the democracy, they have to assume certain values as true when they when they come together to make political decisions. Um, it was that kind of argument, and therefore you have to have security in your – it was sort of like a, a take on the Marxian idea that uh, don't argue with me if there's not food in my belly. Like I need to have food in my stomach to argue with you, so everyone has these basic rights to subsistence and this kind of stuff. So that was his teacher's argument, and Hans thought about that, and when he came across later Mises and Rothbard, praxeology from Mises and radical anarchist libertarian thinking from Rothbard… He thought more and more about Habermas's argumentation ethics, and he thought I could work this into a libertarian version. And that argument is basically there are problems with the natural law argument for rights, and the problem is basically, number one, human nature is too vague and diffuse to get a lot of content out of what it, what it is. And then there's the logical problem, the is-ought gap, which is trying to deduce an ought or a normative statement. From it, from it, from a descriptive or a factual or an is statement, which is the problem David Hume pointed out long ago. That whenever you see someone making an argument based upon facts, then they all of a sudden shift in their argument, saying, "Therefore, because human nature is this way, therefore this is what we should do." They shift from one realm to the other, and a lot of philosophers believe that that's a um, that's a logical problem. It's, it's, there's an unbridgeable gap between is and ought. Um, 
so that's a defect of natural arguments because the argument is that because of how God made us or how we evolved or what our nature is, this is how we should act, and this is what laws we should have. So Hoppe said, let's step back and think about what the, the whole endeavor of argumentation is. So whenever we talk about what rights people have, what the law should be, about any normative matters, we have to settle these matters with a rational discussion, which you can mm-hmm. call dialogue or discourse or argument. So this has to be done this way, and he would say it's impossible to deny this because you would contradict yourself by engaging in an argument saying that argument is not necessary. So what he's saying is that argumentation, which is rational human interaction and the, and the exchange of, of propositions that you can try to justify with different reasons or evidence, that's essentially got to happen to establish any ethical or normative proposition ever, just as a general matter. So then the question is, what is argumentation? What is that activity? And in essence, argumentation is a subset of human action. It's not all human action is argumentative, which is one way he criticized uh, the, the work of um, Roger Pallon and um, his professor, whose name I'm forgetting, uh, because who, they focus on um, what's implicit in action. And Hans is like, no, I'm a Misesian. Action doesn't connote anything necessarily but argumentation does because in that point you're in a context where you're arguing with someone you're trying to make a point you're trying to establish the truth of things and to have that interaction be genuine and real and a real discussion um the the participants basically treat each other with a certain amount of peace and respect mm-hmm. because you're trying to persuade someone to accept what you're saying whether it's a factual matter theoretical matter matter about causal laws or physics, or even a normative matter, an ethical proposition, whatever you're trying to persuade someone of, you're trying to persuade them to accept it by the force of your words alone, your reason alone, and the evidence you can adduce, but you're not coercing them. You're not saying, you need to say the words, you're right, otherwise I'm going to hit you on the head with a hammer, Mm -hmm. because that wouldn't be an argument. That would just be coercion. So the essence of, of genuine argumentation is that there's a peace aspect to it. So Hans is simply observing that to establish any normative truth, any ethical truth, it has to be done by humans engaging in discourse with each other. And that discourse has to be in a peaceful context. That is, the participants presuppose that they both value truth-finding and peace and respect for each other's bodies, at least during the argument. So there's an ethical framework that's sort of built into the argumentation process which means that you could never in principle justify a claim that contradicted those presuppositions. So then the argument spins from there in the traditional libertarian way to say basically the preconditions, the presuppositions of any peaceful discourse are the ground norms that support libertarianism and that are contradicted by any what he calls socialist, which is anything non-libertarian. So anything that you, anything that's a, if you if you propose an aggressive norm like uh, not respecting other people's property mm-hmm. or invading their property or or coercing people, that is contrary to what we've already accepted as the value. So the the point of doing it this way, Hans believes, Hoppe believes, is that. You overcome this is-ought gap this way. You just sidestep it because mm-hmm. you're not saying we're going logically from an is to an ought. In a sense, you're going from an ought to an ought. 
you're going from an ought that everyone necessarily presupposes by being a participant in discourse to higher level oughts. So you're, you're starting from an ought and you're going to another ought. And the ought that you're starting from is one that's undeniable, right? So that's why that we call this a transcendental argument because it's, um, it's saying that a necessary feature of this activity is something, and we admit that this activity necessarily exists, mm-hmm. and therefore the necessary feature is true. So in this case, it would be for argumentation to happen, people have to respect each other's rights, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and argumentation undeniably happens. You can't argue that you, we can't argue. So we admit argumentation happens, and we admit that anyone ever trying to justify any principle whatsoever, any policy, any law – they have to do it in that context, so they could simply never advance a socialist claim or a criminal claim, and they're the same thing in a sense, because it would be contrary to the ethical underpinnings that they already both share. So I think that's the essence of it, and then you could extend it to property rights in things beyond your body. But once you establish that there is a normative or an ethical core to the process of justifying anything ever, mm-hmm. then – those norms have to have a bearing upon what you could possibly succeed in arguing for in the argument itself. So he came out with this in 88. He got lots of flack from maybe 15 libertarian thinkers and philosophers at the time. I think Rothbard was the only one in that symposium who gave him like a full-throated endorsement. Rothbard was enthusiastically in favor. He thought that Hoppe had sort of broken the logjam that mm-hmm. some of Rothbard's own natural rights thinking was kind of stuck in, so he thought he had made a, a big advance. Uh, the other respondents were Randians and utilitarians and minarchists, uh, basically, and so they all had different problems with his argument, and some of some of which you and you and Gene had to later. And as your, I recall, your- David Gordon said something along the lines of, "Let me just defend Hoppe from this one particular type of critique." So David wasn't necessarily endorsing it. He was just saying, I've heard people say this problem against Hoppe, and that's a bad objection for these reasons. David was circumspect. Um, He didn't want to go out and attack, um, but he did not endorse. Uh, And I've talked to David many times about this since. I don't think David agrees with it, his argumentation ethics. Um, right. I'm just I saying what he, he did in that Liberty Symposium. And that symposium, he was, he was, he sounded neutral. But he didn't endorse it, but he – yeah, he defended it from one type of critique. But I think David's an intuitionist, so he would have some some disagreements with with, with the Hoppe's mm-hmm. approach, but not with the conclusions. Just like I think you don't disagree with his anarcho-capitalist libertarian ethics, which you and I both share, I believe. Right. Yeah, yeah. so is this a good spot for me to – Yep. I, and yep. I let go you go along because you, you were – in the beginning, you were kind of doing just historical stuff. So, yeah, you – in case people at home are going, oh my gosh, he went over. It's 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 just a loose time. Um, so yeah, let me yeah let me first clarify just so yeah, there's no confusion, especially for the listeners. Yeah, what what's going on here? I am certainly in favor of what Hoppe attempted to do. It's just I don't think he did it right. So it's right. yeah, I agree with his conclusion. I you know I'm a I believe in the non-aggression principle. You know we can quibble about oh how do you define it and you know, that stuff. But yeah, I'm I call myself a libertarian. With a small L and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's um, – I applaud what he's trying to do. And also, I should say it's a very audacious thing that he tried. It's just I think if you if you didn't already agree with his conclusion, I could understand why a non-libertarian would think 
this is a non sequitur. So that's what you and I are going to try to flush out now. Your job is to convince the listeners that I'm wrong, or even me. Maybe by the end of this, I'll say, by Jove, you've done it. Um, and, and that's what Rothbard did, too. That's what was interesting, is Rothbard wasn't saying, aha, yeah, high five, this is a guy who agrees. He was saying, Hoppe's done it. Like, Rothbard thought it couldn't be done, and here Hoppe came along right. and did something. So yeah. Rothbard was being very humble and saying, this guy pushed yeah. it beyond what I did. Um, okay, so let me just bring in one element. I don't remember, I don't think you literally use the phrase performative contradiction in your summary there. Let me say what I, how I think that plays into what you just said. And then you tell me if you agree or not, just so we're starting on the same page. Cause what I want to do before we jump into the objections I had, I want to make sure you and I agree on what is it? What is Hoppe's argument? Cause sometimes what happens is the yeah. critic will say something. And let me also say you're right. I did agree with some of the objections in the Liberty Symposium, but other ones were goofy. Right. So and it's, to right. me, that was disappointing because then I, when Hoppe and when he responded to them, he could spend time swatting away what I thought. Yep. Yeah, those are silly objections. And so Hoppe could understandably yep. feel like these guys are idiots. Okay. Um, so so a, a regular old contradiction is just to say, you know, if I say uh, A and not A, that's a contradiction. But if I say Bob Murphy is dead or Bob Murphy's not talking or I am not talking to you right now, that's a performative contradiction. You agree with that? So it's a so yeah. it wouldn't be a contradiction for you, Stefan, to say Bob is dead. You might be wrong, but Correct. it wouldn't be. A, it might be a false statement, but it wouldn't be a contradiction. Whereas if I say Bob Murphy's dead, and I'm referring, you know, to me about this Bob Murphy, then that's a performative contradiction. So it's saying you're you're contradicting the principle by your very action. And so, um, and the reason the reason that's important to notice this is that the purpose of any inquiry is to try to figure out the way things are, what the truth is, mm -hmm. and. We know that anything that leads you to a contradiction, like a logical contradiction, is has to be false. Right. So if you get a contradiction, you're wrong. Now, if you have a performative contradiction, that's all. It's also a way to know something about the world. So you, because my denying my existence would be a performative contradiction, we can know for sure. I can know for sure that I exist. Right. So it, it's a way of figuring out what you can know for sure about the world, whether it's logical or whether it's actually uh, contingent or factual, mm -hmm. like like performative contradictions usually involved. All right. Okay. So, and then the way now that type of thing is involved in this argument is likewise, if somebody were to say, hey, let's have a discussion about the merits of artificial turf versus real grass and football, American football games. And I'm going to point this gun at your head and get you to voluntarily concede that I'm right or else I'll shoot you. That would be, in a sense, a, a performative contradiction because I'm sitting there claiming that we're having a voluntary, rational discussion, um, but I'm bringing force and violence into it. I don't, I don't know if I would I, – I would think that would just be a sham argument. So it, it would simply not be a real argument. If you're coercing the other person, that you're not having a genuine discussion because you're not trying to get to the truth of the matter. If you're coercing someone to do it – so I don't know if that's a performative contradiction. The performative contradiction comes about when, when you engage an argument which has peaceful uh, presuppositions and you support something that uh, is unpeaceful. That's the contradiction. When you, when you, when you come forward with a, a proposition – that contradicts what you evidently do also value because of your participation in argument. In the case you gave, I would think that's just not a real. It's not, it's not even a real. It's 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 a mock or a sham um, proceeding. It's just something cruel. You're you're just trying to coerce someone to do something. 
So you're using someone as a means. You're treating them. You're you're you're, you're acting criminally. I wouldn't you say that's a really a, an argument? Well, well, right. I agree. It's not an argument, but that's why if I'm saying I'm arguing, just like if I said I'm not speaking to you right now, that's a performative contradiction. If I pull out a gun and point at you and say I'm having a rational, voluntary argument with you right now yes. with this gun, yes. isn't that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, I would agree that, that, that there's a practical contradiction in that. Um, yeah, he's he's demonstrating that he's not having a practical, a uh, peaceful argument, but he's saying that he is. So, what they can't both be true. Yeah. So I would agree. Yeah. So where I'm surprised you were objecting so early on because I thought what Hoppe was trying to do was to say, look, we can all agree if someone's trying to use violence to win an argument, claiming that this is just an actual argument seeking the truth. We can all agree that's crazy, that's illegitimate, and it's a form of contradiction because it's violating the norms of argumentation right off the bat. And then if we could all agree on that, then he was just going to try to extend it and say, okay, by the same token, then if you are you know, threatening, yes. threatening me with socialism, as it were, it's the same principle. But a core, a core part of his argument, which is underemphasized uh, sometimes, is he, keeps, he, he mentions it himself, but it's like a footnote, mm -hmm. is that you have to understand that part of his argument is that any ethical claim necessarily has to be decided in argumentation. It's not like free-floating. It's not out there that you just find it. Mm -hmm. it. It has to be decided by people engaging in rational discussion and discourse and inquiry, and that means that whatever the norms are that, uh, that, that populate or inhibit that activity have to have some bearing upon mm -hmm. what you could possibly argue for. That's a, 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 a key point. If we were in some different universe where we could somehow establish things without arguing, it may be different. But because we're talking about norms, we're talking about – well, go ahead. I'll let you – Okay, yeah, let me try it as – some. and again, for the listeners, the reason I'm going to spend so much time here is because you know, Stefan and I agree with the economics and everything, and so it's critical that we understand right here – what Hoppe's argument is, because I've noticed in the past when critics will say something, a lot of times the defender of Hoppe or Hoppe himself will say, no, no, you're misunderstanding what my claim was. And so that's why I'm trying to be crystal clear here. So are you okay with this? Not necessarily these are the words you would have used, but are you, do you think it's a true statement for me to say one of the ways of expressing Hoppe's insight, it's not that he was claiming he had proven socialism was immoral, but rather he was saying anyone who tries to argue for the ethical nature of so, or anyone who tries to argue that socialism is moral or is ethical would be caught in a performative contradiction in the very attempt yeah. to do so. So you could never just, yeah, you could never justify socialism. Is that, is, and, and that's, that's, I think that's one way to, to put it. And the re that's why I brought up the point where every justification is argumentative justification. Right. Yeah. That's, I was just, I was playing off what you just said. Right. So, what I just so said is that, that kind that, of capturing so that. It, it, so, so no, so no socialist norm could ever be argumentatively justified. Right. That's kind mm -hmm. of what the essence of his whole argument is: is that the realization that it's impossible to argumentatively justify a socialist norm because the person uttering it would be making a statement that is in performative contradiction with the presuppositions he he not, and he must have to be engaging in that argumentation in the first place. Great, yeah. And, and so again, the, this is the way he tries to elude, and I agree, if he, if he did this, he would be eluding it, so I don't, I'm not loading the deck or being cynical. 
that just standard is odd distinction that, you know, we can, as economists, make a bunch of statements about socialism, but how could we ever conclude, therefore, it's immoral? And so what he is doing, though, is he said, ah, you're right. Just that direct frontal assault doesn't work. You can't just make a list of objective, factual statements about, you know, social organization and then conclude this is an immoral framework. But what I can say is socialism is unjustifiable because if anyone attempted to justify yeah. it rationally yeah. through argumentation, that would be necessarily be a self-defeating enterprise. It's so, literally that's it. It's literally mm-hmm. unjustifiable. You can't you you actually cannot justify it. And and there's a, there's a quote that I like. It's about how uh you know, oh it was is this is this this Roman emperor, right? When he uh he had his his co-emperor Geta or whatever murdered and he he went, he tried to basically twist the arms or bribe the the jurists to come up with a defense. And one of the one of the famous Roman jurists, he said, "It's easier to commit murder than to justify it, mm-hmm. right? So you can do it, right? But to justify it is a different matter. And so that's the point here: is that we're not saying you it's not like a magic barrier that prevents people from committing aggression. You can't. It's not like a spell you can say in front right. of someone, make mm-hmm. them. But it's so it's possible to do whatever you want to do, but it's not possible to justify it." Yeah. And if that's what you want to do, which is what you have to do when you're engaged in discourse with people about what the law should be, mm-hmm. what justice is, what how we should treat each other, how should we, we act with respect to each other, the discussion is all about what should be the case. And so we're already stepped our toes into that realm. We've 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 jumped the is ought divide ourselves by entering mm-hmm. the ought realm, and we have certain shared norms, and we're simply pointing out, okay, we have these shared norms. These higher level norms, like the laws, we, we they have to be compatible with those. Mm. And the only way to avoid the contradiction would be to jettison the basic norms. But you can't do that because it's implied in argumentation as an activity. Right, and so yeah, and that's yeah, and just to, I mean, I you and I are tracking here, stuff, but just to make sure the listeners are getting this. Yep. So that just like um, you know, I could I could pick up a uh, a little cylindrical disc, and we can go out in the ice and take sticks and start smacking around. And I say, wow, this is a great game of basketball, isn't it? And, you know, you could say, no, we're not playing basketball. So it's it's not like that's an is-ought problem. You're just saying, no, that's not what basketball is. We're playing ice hockey. And likewise, if I take out a gun and stick it at your head and say, wow, this is a great argument we're having over, uh, you know, whether white or black is more is better in chess, right, isn't it? And you can say, no, this isn't an argument. You're, the fact that you're bringing violence into it, it's not an argument. And so, so there again, it's it's like the the definition of it. So it's not that you have your subjective preferences and oh, I would prefer arguments to be free from violence or threats, and other people have difference of opinion. You know, it's not you know that's the way it's sidestepping the standard is ought thing is that if you're going to call it an argument by its very nature, its objective definition, it means there can't be threats hanging over your head to get you to say something because then it's just not an argument anymore. Okay, so far you're being really fair in your presentation. You got me, <laughs> wor- you got me worried here. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's about to come? Okay, so, uh, but, but for real, I just want to make sure, right? So we, we're agreed that that's, that sounds that that's sounds basically right. To okay, me. okay. So although, although just uh-huh. just one 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 point, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have my own. You probably have your own view of rights, which we might get into. I've got my own view, which is not the same as Hans's. It's built on his, mm-hmm. um, and. I and others, we, I sometimes reframe Hans's argument, and I don't present it the same uh, Teutonic logical order he does. But from my point of view, as a as a fan of it, now I'm not the purveyor of it, but 
or the creator. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me that's a reasonable, uh, fair description you've given so far. Okay, and then one last clarification before we get into the good stuff. And, and I, but, I, but all joking aside, I think we are, this is helping because some people, you know, might read his thing and it's, it's a little bit opaque, but this is, I think, making it click better. Hans and you, like this whole premise of argumentation is not claiming that in any particular argument, one side is right and the other side's necessarily performing a contradiction, right? You can, you can be wrong in an argument without engaging in performative contradiction. Do you agree with that? Yeah, okay. of course. Right. So, and I thought so, but I just wanted to get that on the same. So, it's not that Hans is saying anybody who ever disagrees, not even just with him, but you know, in a particular argument, one side's right and the other side's necessarily wrong. He's saying that it just so happens, just like there's a special type of wrong if you said, I'm going to argue by pulling a gun out. Like, it's not even that you're wrong. It's that it ceases to be an argument. Likewise, if you tried to rationally justify socialism or you know, non, a non-libertarian value system or ethical system that fundamentally deviates from standard libertarianism, then... It's not merely that you're incorrect, which we think is libertarian. It's that in the same type of way, qualitatively, you've ceased to engage in a rational argument at that point. You're, you're yeah. actually – you thought you were justifying socialism, but no, it stopped being a justification because of what socialism actually entails. Something like that? And I think that – yes, and I think Hans Hopp is not – he's also not claiming that his framing of it is the best way to persuade Socialists. He's not saying that at all. Right. Um, he's saying that here is why we're correct. Like, yeah. okay, if you're a libertarian already for whatever reason, here's why that the alternative norms of socialism, let's say, are, are, are literally unjustifiable and could never be coherently justified. So he's explaining why it's unjustifiable, but it doesn't mean that that's the best way to persuade people who are – on the fence or outside the gates or whatever. It's it's basically a version, I think, of just the common sense tactic of telling a child or your neighbors, listen, what you're doing is not consistent with the rest of your values and mm-hmm. your life and the ones that we all share. You're pointing out to people, you're nudging them to be more consistent. And that's what libertarians basically are. We're like we're like common sense, classical, middle of the road, classical liberal types with with like a fetish for consistency. Like we push it to the max limit. Um, mm-hmm. So if you care about justice and you want to be more consistent, um, then you start caring about these issues. So it's it's maybe a way of demonstrating to us why what we believe makes sense and is internally consistent. Okay. But anyway, I'm just saying that he's not claiming this is you give them this liberty symposium article and it will persuade a socialist right right i got that right just like the uh the socialist calculation argument might not persuade some you know maybe some other thing will like incentives or you know just oh look at, well, look at how brutal stalin was we don't want to have another stalin do we and someone's like oh heck yeah i don't want it. that's that's too big of a chance even though the, the, there's a sense in which the calculation argument's more fundamental in a particular dispute, that might not be the thing that wins the day for you rhetorically. Right. Okay. So we're you and I are in agreement up till now of what Hop is trying to do. I'm I'm, I'm with you. So now is this the part where I think he doesn't it doesn't work, or at least if the, if if the next step in the argument works, I think it proves too much, and you could prove all sorts of stuff. And so I think we would have to conclude it, that must not be a valid move. So so can you just Again, you know, I'll go ahead and take your time, but not too long. 
and just to say, okay, so now we understand what he's trying to do. So someone says, okay, I'm game. Explain to me. So spell it out for me. Why is it that if someone merely tried to defend, you can, you can call it social, or you can just say a non-liberty, you know, a minarchist or something, someone who wants to deviate from non-liberty or from the standard libertarian view of self-ownership and homesteading and all that, why right. would that person okay. cease to be arguing according to standard norms of argumentation? All right. Um, and uh, yeah, this has to be brief and a summary, and I'm going to miss some uh, ways of putting it Hanswood. Um, for anyone who wants more elaboration on this, I would refer them to uh, a talk he gave about three years ago at the PFS. It's, I'll, I'll put it in my show notes, and I'll give it to you for yours mm-hmm. too. But he, he, he sort of revisits it and restates everything. Um, so the basic idea is that whenever two or more people are seeking to determine what the rules in society should be, right? And this is really the, the fundamental point is that all – this is a Rothbardian point. It's an Austrian point. It's a libertarian point. All rights are property rights. And all property rights are rights to control a scarce resource over which there could be dispute. So the whole reason that all this emerges is because of the possibility of dispute or conflict between humans mm-hmm. over the use of scarce means. So whenever there's a dispute, there's always a dispute over something like that, over physical means. Mm-hmm. Who gets to own it? So all these discussions are about what the law should be, who has the right to this, what property rights. So law, property rights rights, they're all the same question. Who, who is the person who gets the ability in a socially recognized way to control a resource when there's a dispute over it? Now, that means that the disputants, the contestants that both want to use the same resource at the same time but who can't because of the nature of the resource, they have already somehow entered into or decided to enter into this realm, this arena of dispute resolution or discussion about it. They're trying to figure out they would prefer to have a recognized and a fair rule that they can both accept that will determine who is the owner of the resource instead of having conflict over the resource and just physically fighting over it. So the entire purpose of any discussion, any 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 uh, argumentation, any any hearing, any any trial is to make an argument or a claim for what you believe. I think I should control this resource. He thinks he should control it for different reasons. Once you've entered that arena, you have admitted that, okay, we're already respecting certain things that we can't deny. We, we, we have to believe, for example, that there should be some owner, right? Because otherwise, you, we should just fight about it. So we believe there should be some owner, someone. And we also believe this can't be arbitrary whoever is assigned ownership, because otherwise it's just a random or biased rule that no one could accept as fair. So you have to base it in actual arguments and the nature of things. And one thing Hoppe points out is that just for us to live as humans, we all know that we have to employ means in every action. And there are scarce means out there that were at once unowned. And if anyone's going to employ them, Someone has to be able to grab this unowned thing and start using it. Mm-hmm. So none of us can object in general to the idea of first appropriation, for example, which we call homesteading sometimes. So none of us can object in general to the idea that humans should be able to go out and find a thing that no one else has a claim over and use it. No one can really object to that because that's the basis of our very activity happening in the first place. And then 
combine that with a second insight, which is this the time priority of things, which is that an earlier user has to have priority over a later because otherwise there's no property rights at all. And we're back to a conflict situation. So you have to have – once an owner is determined, they have to have ownership until they choose not to, which would be a contractual uh, abandonment or transfer to someone else. Um, so you have these very, very core rules, which you can see are already dovetailing with the Lockean or with the libertarian principles. Once you accept that people have to be able to use resources that are unowned, and they get to they get to own them until they choose not to, that establishes basically the entire libertarian order. And all these socialistic principles somehow violate one of those because they say, well. Your wealth now is owned not by you, even though you found it or you made it or you acquired it by contract from a previous owner, but just because we decree it to be so, which is the same as not arguing at all. So to enter into this argumentative arena, you're already accepting the need for a conflict-free set of norms that can allow us to live in cooperation with each other and in peace, and they have to be fair. And they have to be not arbitrary. And when you go through all those things and you have a little bit of economic <laughs> knowledge, the only thing left standing is the libertarian set of norms. Everything else falls. So I look at it like as a filter. It's like there's just simply no way to argue coherently in a peaceful setting for things that are contrary to what we're doing right now. So I would say that's one way to present, um, say, a version of Papa's argument. So you own your body because you have to… So, so for example, you have two people in a dispute, and let's say it's a man and a woman, and the man wants to have sex with the woman. Mm-hmm. He wants to use her body for his purpose. She doesn't want to. So the question is, who owns her body? Is it her or is it him? Mm-hmm. So as between those two, she could she could point out, well, you want to own me. That means you own your body, and you want to own something else too, but you own your body. But you own your body why? By virtue of what? All we know – is that you're just an actor who controls his body. So by virtue of that fact, you claim to own your body. But if we're having a real a real discussion, you have to admit that the same facts apply to me. So I own my body too. In other words, you can't claim to own your body, which is implied in your wanting to own me, without granting me the right to own my body. Otherwise, we're not having an argument. Now you're just coercing me. And so self-ownership comes from that. And then the property rights, as I kind of elaborated earlier. Let's take a break from my discussion with Stefan to talk about my pamphlet, Chaos Theory, which is two essays on market anarchy. So with all these interviews, what I do is try to come up with what's the thing that I've written that most corresponds to the topic under consideration. And so in this case, I think it's my essays on private law and private military defense. So if you haven't checked it out, I urge you to do so. The PDF is available for free at Mises.org or you can get the physical book. For more details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash chaos. Okay, um, so the the difficulty is going to be, it's tricky since I am fine with self-ownership and all that kind of stuff, and so it's hard to like imagine someone who didn't think that. Let me try it this way. Let me try this one, and then we'll we'll circle back. Let me ask you one more time, but I'll I'll put a little more emphasis on it. Again, I'm just trying to think of what's the best way to, to go forward. So I think somebody would might understandably say, though, 
are you are you talking about it's so it's not that the person you're directly arguing with you're saying that person has self ownership for the purpose of the debate it's it's, it's, it's so it's not an issue of cuz i i've seen some people paraphrase and say it like this and but the, but it's not the way you just said it and so this is interesting like i'm actually i think i understand where you're coming from better now than before um so it's i've seen some people say well yeah because how can i be expected to have a debate with you if I don't own myself. And so it sounds to me that that's not actually what the, what the argument is. That's not what the claim is. Well, and you know, Hans might actually disagree with me on some of this because Mm -hmm. some of the ways he argues it. um, So, and you brought this up in your argument or in your article um, about arguing with a slave or Mm -hmm. whether the conclusions of our dispute are valid only for the duration of the argument. I think that's like the nub of the, which, which by the way, I think is a sincere, um, I think it's a sincere concern about the argument. Um, the way I look at the, the, so there's, there's two parts of this. Number one, let's take the duration thing to have any property norms at all. They have to be agreed to societally and they had to have been decided upon at some point. And that had to be an argumentation. So the fact that the rules apply outside the duration of the argument about them to me is not is, – is, is a confused – it can be a confused argument because we, the only way you could ever establish norms would be to take some time aside and step back and let's talk about this. But when, when we're doing this argument, we're talking about the norms that will apply when we're done arguing. So – the subject of the discussion or the object – I don't know which word is the right one – during the argument is what's going to happen after the argument. So that's what we're arguing about. So if you're saying, listen, who gets to use your body and your property and your fields and your horses and cows, whatever, after we walk out of this room, that's what the subject is. And that's got to – I still think that has to be informed by the norms that you, that you both are admitting that you follow – by agreeing to argue in the first place. Like by agreeing to argue, you're saying that you prefer a reasoned cooperative solution, a peaceful one over just violent conflict. And so once you admit that that's informing the norms that you're going to argue for, that does apply outside the argument. So I don't think that this duration argument makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk about the slave or even a better example would be a, a, a prisoner. Like let's say that some guy comes into your into your town or your homestead at night and you know kills a couple of your kids and your horses and you catch him you've got him tied up and you're waiting for you know the sheriff to arrive the next morning so you might have a discussion with the guy while you got him tied up now is it possible to have a discussion even though in a sense you're holding the right of coercion over him um the the way i look at that is and I don't think I've seen Hans address this. I don't know if he would disagree with me on this, but the way I look at it is uh, these these ethical stances are prima facie, or they establish like a first approximation. So prima facie, you and I are arguing. All we know is that we're both actors. Mm-hmm. We don't even know what our genders are or our ages or our nationalities, nothing. And I'm claiming self-ownership because I want to do something to you or with your property so I'm claiming self-ownership for myself by virtue of my characteristics, and my characteristics are just that I'm an actor. But you're an actor too, so if that's my only characteristic, then we're both in the same uh, status. 
And I can't deny you have rights by virtue of your being an actor if that's my claim for my being having rights because I'm an actor. But then you can narrow this down, and even Richard Epstein talks about this in pleadings and presumptions and how you – in a legal system, you have the burden of proof can shift or the burden of argumentation can shift. So I think what would happen is you narrow things down, and um, if I'm arguing with a prisoner, like he can get me to admit I'm treating him like a prisoner. I have ropes around him. Mm -hmm. I'm actually coercing him. Now, if it's just another person similarly situated… I can't come up with a reason to treat him like that. So I have to set him free. I have to admit that that's why the libertarian argument emerges. But if it's an actual prisoner who committed a crime, I can actually make – and th- th- this is where the universalizability comes into it. Like uh, The fact that the arguments you make have to be of general um, appeal, have to be universalizable, not particularizable. So particularizable means I can't just have an argument with you and say… Okay, my proposition is I get to own you because I'm me and you're not me, which is the essence of socialist ethics, I believe. It's like I get to hit you because I'm me and you're not me, but that's not a real argument. That's the same as not engaging in argument at all. But the point is if you respect universalizability, you can make distinctions as long as it's rooted in the nature of things. And in this case, if you have a guy that committed aggression against you and your family… Now you have an objective fact about the world, which you can use to consistently say why he's treated by different rules than you are, why I get to tie you up and send you off to prison or even execute him or whatever, and you don't get to do that to me because it's, there's not, we're not symmetrical because you are a criminal and I'm not. You committed rape and murder. I didn't. So I don't think it's logically impossible to argue with a slave or a prisoner. It's that the presumption of it is that, at least during the argument, you have to grant them – you do have to grant even your prisoner freedom from coercion if you want to have a real argument with them. You can't threaten to harm them even if you have the right to. You can't threaten to do that if you want to, to have a real discussion. But then you can say, but I still have the right to treat you as a slave because we're different. We're different because of what you did. Mm-hmm. Um I just think that in the case of, of, of like shadow slavery, the difference is not good enough. The difference is that you're black and I'm white, which is an irrelevant difference. Mm-hmm. But the difference that you committed aggression and I didn't, that's not an irrelevant difference. So that's how I would look at mm-hmm. that. Okay, yeah. So let me – I realized what was happening here. So like I said, when when I asked you 10 minutes ago, okay, now make that next step because here's where I usually have pr- – yeah. you know, this is where the di- – what you said seemed fine to me or at least – the standard objections that would come to mind didn't come, but I realize it's because you didn't make it about the person. So that stuff you said, I don't see why you would need the argumentation at all. In other words, you were saying things like, well, if we're going to have norms or, you know, print, it's got to be, we're ultimately talking about property rights. Okay. Check. That's not about argumentation per se. That's just a fact about scarcity and how the world is. And then you say, and they have to be universalizable. Again, that's not directly from argumentation per se. So, the way you tried to justify the libertarian ethic there, I don't think was going through the the route of argumentation ethics. And so, like I said, I've seen, and I think even Hoppe's, I, not, not um, I haven't looked at the PFS one. I apologize. I, I meant to, and I forgot to, but his original Liberty Symposium Bad one. Bob. I know. Bad I know. Bob. So I don't know how much he stressed it, but for sure, I have seen people summarize it and saying, so just like I can't, 
stick a gun to your head and say, now we're going to argue about ethics, right? And here's my gun by the same token to have a fair debate. You know, the, both people need to be self-owners. They need to have access. They need to be able to go out and acquire property. Right. Otherwise, how could they support right. themselves? How can you have a fair debate, a real debate? Right. And so that's, so it's given that that was the claim, that's what then opened up all the prop, the so you know, ostensible problems of, well, wait a minute. Now you're saying you got to be a self-owner and everything. So that's an empirical claim. And then people were saying, is that necessarily true? Like, you know, for right. example, you I don't. So yeah. I, I, mm -hmm. I agree. I, I agree that um, the way Hans put it, or maybe the way he was interpreted, did open him up to some criticisms, which I just think were in a way distracting. Um, um uh, just like I mean, I did a long review in '94 of his the second book, um, and I pointed out that like I thought in his argument he sometimes was um, let's say careless, but he he sometimes muddled the distinction between um, what I would call control or possession and property rights. Uh, he flipped back and forth, but I thought that in every case it could be. Uh, it could be fixed if you just were a little bit more careful with the words. I still think it's basically true, but uh, so yeah, he would use ownership and control kind of interchangeably, right? I would I would be more clear um, to distinguish. Um, so I I think that the argument is not that okay. The argument is not that the only thing two actual concrete people in the middle of Utah sitting down in a ring and having a discussion, not what they could agree to. It's more of a hypothetical model for us to think about when we imagine what arguments could be justifiable. So when you, when you realize that you could, I mean, if you recall, you and I and Gene had some back and forth for a while on the comments section of antistate.com. It's all gone now because, um, because of the second law of thermodynamics, but um, uh, but there was a point where I noticed that, like uh, your your view in particular, as opposed to some of the views of some of his critics in the Liberty Symposium, um, you didn't seem to deny the universalizability criteria completely, and you didn't seem to deny that there are some ethical or normative presuppositions of discussion. And to my mind, that's all you need is that just a tiny, thin sliver. If you recognize that, we can build on that. But if you if you say there's none, then there's nowhere to go. So I never was clear because uh, we didn't go further after that. Well, what yeah, do you so, think about yeah, let, that? Maybe in the interest of just clarity, let me real quickly just list some of the problems. Because like I said, now – I'm being genuine here. Given how you just laid it out from scratch, what you thought the argument was, now I can see why you thought all the objections Gene and I raised were kind of goofy. Because yeah. you're, but but in my defense, I'm going to say it's because it, to me it sounds like you're advancing a different argument. And so if if what one took the argument to be was, yeah, just like I can't be expected to have a rational debate if you've got a gun literally pointed at me or if you say you better agree with me or I'm going to you know, kick you under the table or something or we've got your wife and kids off stage and if you keep arguing and raising valid objections to my position, we're going to kill them. That's no longer an argument. Likewise, if you sit there and you deny 
the homesteading principle, or you sit there and you deny that billionaires should be able to keep their justly acquired property, even though other people are dying in the streets. If you're going to sit there and deny, you know, then you similarly stopped arguing and now you're just, you know, it's no longer. So to, to make that leap, um, you know, I, I thought they were saying that, yeah, there's something inherent about argumentation. And so this person making the argument needs to have, and, and again, like you said, there, it was precisely the uh, conflation of use and control. So I, you know, I have mm-hmm. to have control of my body, my lungs and whatever to be able to sit there and have an argument. And so since that's what I thought the argument was, the, the claim was, then I was going to say, okay, well, but then by the same token, so I, I'm doing this yep. more just for the listeners, seven, because I can yep. tell now you see what the problem was. By the same token, no, no, I, no, I need I, to, I, yeah, I need to be, along, I need yeah. to be, I need to be standing somewhere, right? I can't have an argument if I'm not standing on ground. So doesn't that therefore justify the George's position that everybody needs to own some physical land because otherwise how could well in other words how could you or, or more than that or more than yeah. that you could you could argue which frank De- frank van dunn in his extended uh defense of hoppe mm-hmm. and criticism of you guys he he goes a little bit too far i think he talks about how you you know you, you couldn't threaten to fire the son of your disputant because that would be coercing him too so that means everyone's mm-hmm. got a right to not be fired i mean right there are weird, these weird slippery slopes that could sneak into this kind of argument. Um, and what's also interesting is, which I didn't realize until you, is that the way Habermas, they tried to use it to justify democratic socialism by saying, how can you be yeah. expected to argue with an, on an empty stomach? So everybody needs to, you know, have three square a day. That's got to be a basic human right that the state yeah. provides. Otherwise, we're not on equal. Fo- so you guys clearly, Hoppe doesn't agree with that. And Hoppe is not a Georgist. So again, it, it seemed like, okay, you as a libertarian must be saying, yeah, we can sit down and have a rational discussion. You're not going to be starving during the debate itself because otherwise it's not it, a valid it, debate. Yeah. But it, that doesn't mean be, you have yeah. a right to food. So likewise, yeah, you need control over your physical body during the debate. But that doesn't mean you own yourself as a general principle, just like you don't have a right to a bunch of food or you don't have a right to own land per se. Correct. So th- that's where G and I were coming yeah, from. It's not a need based. It's not a need based thing. It's more of uh, the fact that we're trying to come up with norms per se, right? And the only reason you want to come up with norms is because you recognize the possibility of conflict, and you want to come up with a norm that can solve this problem. So it can't be mm-hmm. a norm that leads to more conflict, and it can't be a non-norm like just an arbitrary assertion. So it has to be something that these people can come up with that they agree to. And it, that means that it has to be a type of norm that somehow appeals to shared values of these people because you, the is-ought gap is logically unbridgeable. I actually believe that. I think you cannot go from an is mm-hmm. to an ought. Um, there's a trick that some of the Aristotelians use, which is called the assertoric hypothetical, right? So the Kantian idea is there's categorical imperatives, like there are things that are absolutely true without condition, um, even ethically. But hypothetical is an if-then, if-then, if-then. And Mm -hmm. if-then is a way to get around the is-ought problem because you say, well, if if this is the consequentialist case for liberty, most of us really basically favor. If you want peace and prosperity and harmony and wealth and human civilization, then you should favor the free market and private property rights as the means to get there. I think that's probably true, right? But what the Aristotelians or like Roderick Long and and Jeff Poche say is that – it's, it's an assertoric hypothetical, which is – it's not an if-then. It's a since-then. It's like since you agree with this, then we should do this. 
but to my mind, that's logically the same as what the Kantians like, and even even the Randians is what they do. They they're saying, listen, to the extent that we're all part of this human enterprise and having a civilized discussion, we already do share certain basic values. We don't need to debate whether we want humanity to die off or to to prosper. Like anyone who doesn't agree with us that humanity should prosper. We don't want to have a conversation with them. We want to put them behind bars or, or keep an eye out on them. But the people that we talk with, we all share these same values. So I think Hoppe's argument is in a way is, is in a way of directing our attention to this fact that there are, as a matter of fact, shared values that inform what we can then argue like for higher level norms on top mm. of our laws. That's okay. that's sort of how I see the whole mm. thing. Um, um but let me – if you want to go somewhere else, you can, but I'm curious, and maybe you can address this when you think it's the right time, but you said you don't know if it works. Like, but what would it mean for an argument for rights to work in your view? What, what would that look like? In other words, are we left with the abyss of sort of pure intuitionism and just arbitrary preferences, or is there some other type of – Proof that could be and just in in theory, would it have to mm-hmm. be God coming down on a golden chariot and announcing it? Would it have to be a scientific discovery? I mean, what would what would a proof be that would work? Well, one that I found compelling. <laughs> so, for example, let me just if somebody said, "Yeah, Bob, clearly anarcho-capitalism is the best social organization because two plus two equals four. I would say I don't think that argument works. Right. It's not that I disagree that two plus two is four. It's just I don't see how the one leads to the other. And okay. so, um, and so likewise, when Hoppe is saying we all agree, um, there's certain norms presupposed when we engage in rational argumentation, when we're going to have a debate about something, there's some perhaps unstated, implicit assumptions that we all understand are at work. And if somebody were to violate them, then it's no longer an argument. I'm with you so far. That's like the two plus two equals four. But then you say, and therefore libertarianism, that's okay. where I'm saying, I just, I've not seen how that works. And so some of the ways that I've seen conjectured as to how you get from A to B by saying, for example, because yeah, you need to own your body. Otherwise, how can you have a debate? I don't think that's a good one because then that would prove you need to own land, you need to have food and, and so forth, which we know that's not what libertarianism implies. Right. So that's yeah, that's and, and, and for that part, I, I as I mentioned earlier, just quickly, I mean, I would say that I think what it means is that you have two relatively equally situated actors mm-hmm. discussing what the rules should be that can result in conflict avoidance, and they have to admit again that we need the ability to use things that no one else is using. That's how they get to be used in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Um, I claim my body, you claim your body. I'm in no better position to own your body than than you are to own mine. So these things come out of it as just what you can't coherently argue. But but I'm but but you're pointing out the defects you see. I'm curious what would be, what could be even an argument that would so-called work. What would it have to be? What kind of argument would it be? Or what do you think does work? Or do you um, just believe in libertarian rights because of preference? Uh. I have found certain things compelling, but or, or that persuade me. But I do admit they're not airtight. They're, it's not like a Pythagorean theorem. So perhaps that makes me an intuition. I mean, I'm a Christian, as you know. So ultimately, it, you know, that's where I'm getting my 
ethical values from. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, I, I don't have a great Okay, so, 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 but let's just take it in the simplistic mm-hmm. way. So there's a God, God is good, and God has communicated somehow a little bit to us about what he thinks and wants. So let's just assume all that. We, we have some knowledge of what this powerful being wants us to do and that he thinks is good and he will punish if it's wrong and he, he will reward if it's good. So basically is that the answer? It's like, okay, so we have this source of knowledge that informs us as to what ethics are and you can build upon those ethics to get political ethics. Is that basically the structure? I would say of, of what your summary there, I would tweak it and say it's more like God designed the the physical material yeah. universe, the laws yeah. of nature, human beings, and they do have a nature. And then, yeah, he gave us instructions to say, I know how you work. And if you follow these rules, you will prosper and things will go well for you. If you deviate from them, you're going to, there's going to be problems. You're, you're going to wish you hadn't, but it's going to be long-term. Like you're going to be tempted yeah, so, to, it's so, going to seem so, attractive, but it's not. You don't really seem to accept the is all dichotomy then. Like, I don't think you think there's a problem there, a logical problem, going from is to odd. So in a way, you're a monist. Let me be real slippery because I'm an economist. I'll be on the one hand. I understand how Hume, when he says you can't go from an is to an odd, I understand why that sounds right. But my understanding is like more recent philosophical work. They basically said, why not? You just asserted that. Who who says? (laughs) And so, I, I mean, I'm sure they dressed it up more. And I don't remember who they were, but this is like within the last 20 years. I remember reading David well, Gordon. And I think it. it's because I think because uh, they're just different realms of mm-hmm. assertion. When when you say something is a certain way, you're talking about say facts. When you say the way things ought to be, now you could dispute this, and people have different beliefs. But I think when you say that it's wrong to do that, um, you're not making a mere factual statement. You're saying something about a different aspect or realm of human action. Yeah. Well, let me say um, this. I. Th- so just like the sun is hot or, well, I mean, the, the sun is warmer than the earth, that's a factual statement. And someone might disagree, but they're just wrong. Likewise, I think it is objectively wrong to eat babies for sport, let's say, like just for fun. Like that is immoral. And that's an objective fact. And if somebody says, no, I don't think it is. I think, well, you're just wrong. But it's not a, okay. It's so I agree the there same, are different types of statements. It's not the same kind of fact. It's not just the same like two plus two equals though. four. Yeah, just like two plus two equals four, I think is an objectively true statement, but that's a different type of statement from saying the sun is warmer than the earth. They're different, different realms. So, but, yeah, if we say that uh, that that house exists, we're making a factual statement, which if we're wrong, it would have a difference. It would, it would make a difference to the way the world is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if I say there is a right, a right exists or it's objectively immoral to murder babies. I mean, that makes sense to me if I'm a Christian, because what I'm saying is it displeases God. Okay. But that's just but, a factual. But, but hang on. But I mean, so I get where you're going with this, but um, let me just clarify. I think it's even when I was an atheist, I would have agreed with that. Now I might've been more, I, it's hard for me to remember I probably would have been real wishy-washy and like, well, it's, you know, ought and I probably would have put good in quotation marks and stuff because you got to be real careful and scientific. But yeah, yeah, I, I, so I'm not saying 
you need to believe in a God. Here, let me show you in the Bible. And, and also there's troubling passages in the Old Testament where he orders people to kill babies. So you could very understandably say, what are you talking about? I'm saying just no. Yeah. You as a human being, you know it's wrong to kill, but you might not know why. Just like yeah, yeah, yeah. mathematicians no know that. certain things and then they sit there and try to you know justify it and whatever. And there's certain in principle problems with the attempt to rationally justify our knowledge of certain things in math. So, so likewise, well, the, same thing to here. The reason I bring this up is I think that the fact that you you basically don't quite reject, you, you don't accept the is-ought dichotomy is maybe one reason why you have a problem with Hoppe's argument because you think there's another way. Um, but what I don't quite comprehend is, okay, so you and other people who have qualms with Hoppe's approach, let's say that we agree. We agree that the libertarian case for rights is, I don't know how you want to put it, exists, is objectively correct. Um, so you you probably yourself would agree that the socialist norm cannot be argumentatively justified. Would, would you agree with that? Would you agree that Hoppe is correct in saying that socialists cannot argumentatively justify their socialist claims? Okay, this is, yeah. So it's going to sound like I'm being real nitpicky here or whatever, or slippery. Right, I happen to believe that it is a true statement that socialism cannot be justified ethically, Yeah, but I yeah. don't know how to prove it. How do you think about I that? I understand that, but, but <laughs> no, but, but that's fine. But you agree. Mm. So you think Hoppe is right, that socialism I think his cannot conclusions be right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, but that's what his argument is, is that you can't argumentatively justify socialism. And you agree with that. Yeah, but he didn't establish it. So if I say. Yeah, but you didn't either. I know, so but at least I'm admitting it. <laughs> so I'm, okay, I'm, I, I think know. it'd be so, more straightforward. So, yeah, but the whole criticism of Hoppe can't be that he shouldn't have big britches and think that he's done more than he has. I mean, you actually agree with what he says, and you don't have a better argument, and you don't know what the argument would be. So at, at worst, he's no worse than you. You both no, agree. No, 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 no. Hang on. So now, we're, now finally we're having a substantive sharp disagreement here. Yeah, you're, you're saying, you. look, Hoppus made an argument to establish X. You agree that X is correct, and your mere quibble is that his argument is invalid? Give me a break, Bob. That's what you're saying to me? Kind of, because <laughs> if you had an independent basis for it, and you, but if you don't have one, then it's like you hold a okay, strong okay. belief I, I, no, I take it, for I do no have reason. One. So I you're have saying one. he has no reason to. I have one. But I have no reason. Socialism cannot be justified because unicorns are pretty. There's my argument. And you, know, you might object and say, I don't see how the one... What's your argument? See, you I mean... The the wrong, <laughs> you picked the wrong argument there because I actually agree with that one. Well, <laughs> all right, then let's publish it. We'll get Walter Block, <laughs> we'll get Walter Block to jump in. <laughs> I think you, that's, the title will be the whole article. Yes. The, and the horn of the unicorn will be the wedge, you know, the tip of the spear to uh, split the socialist ranks. Okay, okay so no, I think so, we're... No, okay, but... Um, so what you're saying is, Okay, here's Bob Bob one in reality. I believe in libertarian rights, but I'm not quite clear why. And Bob two is I believe in libertarian rights because of the unicorn thing, which is silly. So mm -hmm. you're saying it's better to have an empty set zero claim than a claim that is nonsensical. Okay. I guess that's probably true. But why? I mean, but why? Because you hurt you hurt your what do you do? You, I mean, is it less less likely to persuade people than a no, like a bad argument is less likely to persuade people than a no argument. 
I mean, that that is true, but just even beyond that, what's the point of advancing invalid arguments? Like, to, to me, that's, that's like a violation of argumentation right there. Like, yeah, I am going to knowingly but, advance an argument that I know is a, is a non sequitur. Yeah. Like, haven't I, I done something I just, wrong? I just don't, I'm not persuaded that Hoppe's um, spinning out of ideas is the same as the, the unicorn example. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, and, and for people listening, yeah, obviously, I'm not saying his was... I'm responding to you, though, like trying to say, concede yeah. for the sake of argument, Bob, that you're right. Why are you having such a problem with this? How is he hurting anything? So I'm trying to show right, no, you. But, so, but, but what's interesting is because you don't have a clear basis for your own conclusions, It's to me it's vague about what the exact objection is. Because let's characterize Hoppe's position as saying, I've just established why. A socialist ethic cannot be argumentatively justified, and his argument is that because it contradicts the peaceful presuppositions of argument per se. Okay, that's his basic argument. And you're like, no, I also think that a socialist ethic can't be justified, but I'm just not sure why. You follow me? It's like, well, then what's the objection? So you have a hundred guys in the room. They all they're all libertarians. They all agree that the socialist Socialist ethics cannot be argumentatively justified. They all agree on this, but none of them are sure why. And so they all are like, oh, maybe it's because of this. Maybe it's because of this. And then one guy goes, maybe it's because of this. And everyone like looks at him and goes, you have an argument. How dare you come up with a reason to explain the thing that we already agree with? To me, that's the part that I never I never got the hostility. Now, the hostility, a lot of it is because – these are menacists. I mean, like Lauren Lemaski, who is brilliant, but surprisingly not an anarchist. He wrote this review in Liberty about two or three years later. And he was like, uh, Hoppe argues for nothing less than untrammeled anarcho-capitalism. He sees an anarchist for heaven's sake. And Rothbard mm -hmm. responded like, well, heavens to Betsy. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> how horrible. So some people I think are opposed because of his approach and because he's an anarchist, right? And radical. Um, but people, uh, I don't know. I've rambled enough. Let, let me I, try I, this. Okay. So in math, there was this thing, Fermat's last theorem, or I don't know. I think it's Fermat, F-E-R-M-A-T. I don't know how you pronounce the guy's name, right? So this famous mathematician on his deathbed, the story goes, you know, writes out this claim and then dies. Yeah. So this is true, but I don't have time to prove it or he dies. And yeah. so there are a lot of mathematicians, you know, they can plug in, you know, numbers and they couldn't find a counterexample, but technically they didn't know, is this a theorem or is it just, you know, false statement? And then finally some guy came along and, and it happened when I was in grad school and, and proved it. Yeah. Okay. And so are you saying that up until then, if mathematicians had been writing up proofs that were wrong, that, and then other people said, well, no, that that's not right. That you would think, what do you, what do you, you know, get, why are you giving the guy a hard time? We all think that it's probably correct. No, and why no, are you? No, no, I'm not saying that. Um, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I'm not saying that at all. I think if he makes an error in his mathematical argument, it's an error. And it's just a bad proof. Um, and that's ultimately the, 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 the criticism here. But what I'm saying is that the ultimate – yeah, I guess you're looking at it as a conclusion and not the argument. So the conclusion is that socialist arguments can't be justified, and you agree with that. But you think that his proof of that is wrong. But what would the proof – what could the proof be? I mean how could you – see, this is the thing about the – the only way the proof could be something different would be if the is-odd gap is not a problem. 
which is why I think this is maybe the, the source of disagreement partly. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you can appeal to some kind of immortal or factual or natural authority like God or whatever, then you can appeal to something solid. Maybe we can't prove it in our lifetimes, but at least in principle, there's a way you could do it, right? You could, you could somehow get insight into what God wants and, um, and then work from there. In other words, if you make it a factual issue, then that's the way you would, you would go about solving the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So so that might, I think I'm agreeing with you that, again, it's hard for me to remember when I wasn't a Christian, which wasn't, you know, actually, ironically, I think when I wrote the original critique with Gina, I may not have been, or at least that was the cusp of when I flipped. I don't remember the exact timeline, but. I I remember when you weren't a Christian, if you want to talk about those days. (laughs) Let's just keep that to ourselves. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) it's, uh, let's see. So yeah, you're right. So me, I'm much more, yeah, for sure. I can say I'm much more confident now saying socialism could not be justified ethically or, you know, the warfare state, what have you could not be justified. ethically. I'm very confident in saying that. And probably I'm more confident now than I would have been back when I was an atheist, because yeah, now I'm, I've, I feel like I'm on much more solid ground that there is an objective morality. Whereas then I was more of a means ends rule utilitarian or something like that. So that's certainly true. So if you're going to say like, that's where it's coming from. And, but I also understand somebody who doesn't share my religious views. I totally get why they would say, no, I don't find that compelling at all. What are you talking about? Well, hold on a second. So why do you think non Christians or non or or atheists, why do you think they are libertarians or how could you communicate with them? Yeah. Because what would you appeal to, to persuade them? Your shared values? Yeah. I think, I think everybody knows, or just about everybody knows that eating babies for sport is is wrong. Um, they just know just just like like even in geometry or something, right? Like you're to proof that you got to start with axioms. And at some point, if you kept pushing it, and you said, okay, this is what I mean by a straight line, or this is what I mean by a point. Somebody said, I, I, no, I don't find that compelling. Y- at some point, I mean, you have to say, well, these are the axioms. With so we've got to start somewhere. So I think with I, I morality is a similar type of thing. Like I can be against a warfare state but I need to start with axioms like you can't kill innocent people just for sport. If you grant me that, well, then I can show you why and, war is immoral or something like that. And you're, and you're using, you know, you're using language a little sloppily, like saying you can't, you know, you mean, you mean, you may not. And then you're saying it's, it's wrong to eat babies, but, and that is a way of expressing our shared human mm-hmm. values about things. But if you wanted to be precise, I, I mean, yeah, you, you cannot not. ethically eat a baby for sport. You're right. That, that, yeah, well, I should have been more but, careful. But then you have to explain what ethic. I, I would say – now, this is just my personal view. I'm, I'm just an amateur on ethics. But I, 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 have, I have qualms with saying something is objectively wrong. Um, I think that's a way of expressing something, but I think what it's expressing is that um, it, it's not what I prefer, basically. So I think it's, it's, it really comes down to personal preferences. Right now, I think most humans tend to share a lot of the same preferences mm-hmm. for various psychological and evolutionary and economic and natural reasons. Right, mm-hmm. um, but when when I say it's absolutely evil to murder someone, that's just a way of expressing my personal disvaluing of that. Right, which you happen to share, and most people happen to share. But I'm just saying, I prefer I don't prefer that. It makes However, though, you, you do mean something different by that rather than just saying, I really don't like chocolate ice cream. I, I much prefer I vanilla. So. 
Oh, really? Well, it's different than that. It's different than that, but I think ultimately it's not. It's it's. Uh, I think uh, I think saying something is objectively evil or objectively wrong is just a way of expressing what your preferences are. But I could be wrong about this. This is, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm an amateur on this, but this is this is what I think. Um, I think that's the nature of morality, which which may be part of this. Look, you, in a sense, you might have, in, from my point of view, you might have an impossible standard for a proof to meet because of your sort of ontological view of the universe, right? The way things are arranged. And because of that standard, Hoppe could never meet it. But my, by my view, the only type of proof has to grapple with and deal with the is-odd gap. Okay, and it has to deal with even if there's a god, and even if he's very powerful, and even if he's very wise, and even if he's very good, even that god can't decree morality. He can impose penalties if you don't comply with his wishes. He might have good mm-hmm. advice. He might be right. Um, but to say he's good, to my mind, means there's a standard of good outside of God. So yeah. he just happens to be good. Right. Yeah, and, the, and this, yeah, and this obviously is a huge issue in theology yeah. and philosophy. You know, is yeah. God good because yeah. good is this external thing, yeah. or is He good yeah. just by definition? You know, that kind of stuff. So I agree. But, it, but I'm kind of a I'm a Misesian or mm-hmm. whatever kind of dualist it is. There, I just think these statements about norms and ethics are categorically different than factual statements. So when you say something's objectively wrong, you're trying to like make it sound like a fact. Which is kind of what the positivists and the monists do, right? The scientist, scientific types do. They try to boil everything down to, in a way, this empirical, factual realm. I'm comfortable with dualist realms like teleology versus causation, uh, description versus prescription, is versus ought. I'm comfortable looking at the world as a human actor and as a conceptual being and understanding different phenomena in different conceptual terms. I don't see there's a way around that, to be honest. Um, and to try to kind of collapse them into each other is where you get to, uh, certain problems. Anyway, we've gone a field here. Yeah. Okay. So, it, but that answer. is interesting, and you might be right that the fact that we have different views there might partly be influencing this. Let me um, circle back. If uh, are you all right if we go like about twenty more minutes? Yeah. Okay. Uh, um. So what? So here's where I think a, a socialist or somebody, or let's say Bernie Sanders type would disagree with you. They would say, okay, we're with you so far, Stefan. They would probably call you Stephen because people always botch your name, but let's say they're, they're careful. They call you Stefan. And then they would say, um, not even a smile from that. Is it because you didn't think it was funny or because you've heard that <laughs> joke? So, <laughs> geez, this thing I'm on. Say that, that'd be, that'd be a performative contradiction by standards. <laughs> right. Okay. So talking let's to, say, you talking to me. Yeah, uh, I know who yeah. you're talking to. Yeah, I thought you were debating me. Where's Stephen? Where's he? Is he, he doesn't even own himself. He's like, he's sitting in a cave, some in a cage somewhere. He's, Poor guy. Um, okay, so w- they would say, "Yeah, you're right." Uh, y- during a debate, you know, you can't hit somebody. Whatever you, this norm of peace imbues it, right? And you and you want to have social rules that are non-arbitrary and, and apply to everybody and uh, that minimize social conflict. And so that's why there shouldn't be billionaires. I mean, clearly, the fact that there's billionaires walking around while there's homeless people that causes angst, that causes riots and stuff. And so. The rule, it's not that I'm saying me as a billionaire, whatever. no, the rule applies to everybody. If I were to become a billionaire, then the rule would apply to me too. And I would have my wealth taken down to put me down to be 900 millionaire, right? And so it's, it's a consistent rule. We apply it to everybody and it minimizes social conflict. So 
obviously you would have a response to that, but I, where I'm coming from is I think you would end up saying, no, here's why I believe in a libertarian social order. And you'd give a bunch of reasons and you would end up just like writing for a new Liberty again, or, you know, chaos theory or what have you, or democracy, the guy that failed or whatever. And that the, it wouldn't be doing, you would have to first convince them to be a libertarian for these other reasons. And then you'd have this thing to say, and see how that's the thing that promotes peace. And so I'm not sure how much work the, I mean, now, anyway, I'll stop there. That's a concern. And now that I'm even saying this, I can see what your counter response might be, but go ahead. Well, and that's why earlier I said that I don't think Hoppe claims, and I don't necessarily believe that like his presentation of this argument is tactically mm-hmm. or persuasively the best way to run around persuading people. To me, it's an analytical device that we use to understand you could you could even say it's just aimed at libertarians, people who already are libertarians. Mm-hmm. It's a way of helping us to explain. Um, so I look at this argument as helping to explain the the fundamental bases of our philosophy. Mm-hmm. All the other stuff, like for new liberty, you're talking about all these. These are like higher level. So once you establish the the, the ground, yeah, then you have to build upon it with history and with economic knowledge and with uh, social knowledge. Um, uh, things like that, and then you develop this this more complicated superstructure, and then you can use that to hurl against Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the idea is not that in an argument with Bernie Sanders, any more than in an argument with a criminal who's trying to, you know, steal my television, <laughs> I might not be able to persuade him with Hoppe's argumentation ethics, or or, or with any argument, right? Even with the Bible, you know, and a cross. Well, sure, right, exactly. I, he has choice. So once you write a book with that title, <laughs> okay, he, he might disregard my arguments. And so the, the idea is that it's a way of explaining to people what the parameters of, 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 of disagreement could be. And you know that you can't veer too far from the things that anchor you in this normative uh, exercise in the first place. So like I think if you argued with someone, you would do what we all do. You would appeal to shared values. And even Bernie Sanders and people like that, mm-hmm. they would admit under penalty of being ridiculed or being embarrassed, they would admit certain shared values which all civilized humans share. So you would point to – and I would call these grun norms right? after Kelsen's legal, legal term. Hoppe might call them sort of the, the presuppositions of action. But you would basically point at some point, look, you and I, we, we all want humans to exist in peace and prosperity and and, com- and, 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 and harmony, right? No one's going to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. A, psych- a psychopath might, but then we, we just throw him in jail. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. we don't argue with him or, we, or we, we, we ostracize him or we keep our eyes on him. So the, the debate with Sanders would be at the higher level because he's not going to disagree that we live in reality or that we, or that we don't exist or that we don't need property. It's on the economics, basically, and on the consequences. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to go there. Anyway. We need property. We just don't need seven houses. That's all I'm saying. Right. That's, I have to throw in an impression every once in a while for the kids. Um, I can yeah, do an impression. So who do you do an impression of, Hans? <laughs> I can do But again. <laughs> um, let's see. So, okay. And I'm... I'm mean this in all sincerity i i understand where you're coming from way better now i think you at least understand where i'm coming from better and i can see it so and i keep using analogies with math here but i think it really is relevant um 
in math, you know, they had a bunch of results, you know, over the centuries. And then there was a push, like in the, I want to say the 1800s and early 1900s to, to like establish better foundations, right? Like to take all of arithmetic. And so they know arithmetic's true and right. And that's very useful. And then they say, okay, but let's put it on an axiomatic footing. You know, let's give a better foundation. So, so the reason people believe in arithmetic is not for the reasons they were going to, they were trying to establish. They just wanted to say, let's be really sure it's right. Let's have a more logical, airtight, concrete foundation for it, for stuff we already knew. So I think it's similar to here. You're saying that, yeah, the way a person gets converted and becomes a libertarian is not going to be because of this. But once you are a libertarian, then you can see, look how deeply we can push this. Look at how fundamental this is. This philosophy you believed in for other reasons, we can justify it to its core. Yeah, and to me, it's more like, okay, being a libertarian, that's, look, I don't, in a way, you don't really need a justification to be a libertarian. It's actually the right way to be. It's a good thing to do. If you want to live your life and not hurt other people, I don't think you have to need, it reminds me of David Kelly, who one of my favorite objectivists, and he wrote this book, this long monograph uh, on benevolence. Like it was like an individualist basis for being benevolent. And, you know, because Randians are like, if you want to be charitable, it's okay as long as you don't take too much of your – it's like they give this grudging like – we're not going to say you're immoral if you're charitable, but <laughs> it's not the highest virtue. Like yeah. if you want to just be a nice, benevolent person, you almost feel guilty if you're a Randian, right? Because you're like, I'm – but um, – so Kelly wrote this book, and it was nice, but I thought only objectivists would need to write a book in defense of being nice. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like we're so anally ups, ups, worried about justifying every little damn thing we do. We need a whole book on why it's okay to be nice to strangers. It's like you don't really need – my point is you don't really need an argument to be a libertarian. Um, but the reason we're libertarians is because something, something bothers us morally, values-wise, right, about – what we see is injustice, right? People hurting each other, hitting each other, stealing from each other, killing each other. Um, why we favor these things, I don't think it's a complicated question. We all, we all sort of know because most of us believe these things, and most people do, I think, to a certain extent. They're just not as consistent um, as us libertarians. And, and to me, that's the whole goal of libertarianism is to have a more consistent um, – political application and legal application of what most of us already agree with on a private. And this is Bastiat's whole point, right? Like the mm -hmm. government can't do things that we wouldn't do in private life. It's basically being consistent. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, I think that's a good spot to, to wrap up. I know we could probably keep going, uh, but, but I do have to grab somebody from somewhere right now. So I do, I do need to stop. Um, you get, get a haircut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a quick operation. It's very peaceful. Um, do you have any closing thing you want to say or or you think you're good? No, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the time. Yeah, so folks at home, that this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 79 where we'll have a bunch of links where you can see us, you know, the arguments in print. But I, I definitely think this was a very useful give and take. So thanks for your time, Stephen. Thank you. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>